Hi, today we're going to be looking at one of the toughest moments that Jesus had to endure and the role that prayer played in it in order for him to overcome this trial. Today's passage is from Luke chapter 22 from verse 39 and on. This is one of the famous stories. This is the part where Jesus gets arrested. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. This is the setting. Now the Mount of Olives is a small area right outside of Jerusalem. And the, the reason it's called the Mount of Olives is because there's a lot of olive trees. Now it's important to note that Jesus came out here every night, but this time the disciples came out with him and it's pitch black outside. There's no such thing as street lamps. So they probably had a torch or something to light the immediate vicinity. Okay, now verse 40. On reaching the place, he said to them, the disciples, pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now this is a very interesting request from Jesus. The disciples at this point are not facing any type of hardship. He's telling them to pray for something that's about to happen to them. I think very often we pray for the, the problems that we're in right now, but here Jesus is telling us to pray for something that hasn't happened yet. So let's imagine that you are one of the disciples, let's just say you're Peter, and then you're going into the garden with Jesus and he turns to you and says, hey, I want you to start praying for the temptation or trial you're about to face. And you're wondering, what temptation is that, Jesus? And he doesn't tell you. So let's keep reading. He withdrew about a stone throws beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now this is a very, very short prayer, but as you can probably guess, there's a lot crammed into this. I want to point out two things. First, this cup. This cup represents the wrath of God and he's basically saying, if there's a way for me to not drink it, please take it away from me. But chances are, this cup of wrath thing doesn't really make sense to you. So let me kind of dive in a little deeper so that we all understand what this cup represents. You see, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi and Jewish rabbis, they understood the Old Testament very, very well. So when Jesus talks about a cup that he doesn't want to drink, he's making reference to several verses in the Old Testament. Now scholars debate about which specific verse Jesus is making a reference to here, but I believe it's from Psalm 75. In that passage, there's this image of God having a cup that's bubbling and foaming with an alcoholic beverage. It's clearly not good for you, but people want it and they want to drink it. And so there's this paradox. In Psalm 75, there's this image of God who hands over the drink and forces the people to drink what they wanted to drink all along. And they walk away tipsy, they stumble, and eventually leads to their ruin. It's something that the people wanted and God gave it to them and it destroyed them. This is an image of the human nature. Why is it that we love to chase after things that eventually destroys us? In the scriptures, humanity wanted certain things that would lead to their ruin and God withheld it and that was symbolized as a cup of wrath. You see, I think in many circles, we think that God's wrath or God's judgment is God punishing people for not obeying him. But when we read through the scriptures, especially Romans chapter one, we notice that God's wrath is basically God handing people over to their own desires. Your actions have consequences and God is saying, okay, go ahead, do what you want because it's gonna to lead to your ruin and I'm not gonna stop you anymore. So in this scene in the garden, Jesus is begging his father, I don't want to drink this cup, which is a representation of the consequences of all the bad decisions we've made. So that's the first thing I want you to pay attention in that short prayer. Jesus is begging his father, take this cup away from me. But then the second part of this prayer is also interesting. He says, yet not my will be done, but yours. 
Now, for those of you who've been with us for a long time, that prayer might sound very familiar. Where else does somebody pray, your will be done? That's right, it's called the Lord's Prayer. Years back, one of Jesus' disciples comes up to him and says, Lord, teach us how to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Basically, Jesus' instructions to his disciples is, whenever you pray, which is a daily thing, every time you pray, make sure you include this Lord's Prayer into it. And as it turns out, this prayer wasn't just something that he asked his disciples to pray. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed on a daily basis. What we find out here is that Jesus has been praying, your will be done, throughout his entire life leading up to this very moment. Now remember, just a few verses ago, he told Peter to pray for something that's about to happen. There's gonna come a time for Peter when he is going to face the temptation of bailing out of this movement. And Jesus is facing that very temptation right here in this garden scene. He wants to run away from this whole thing. He wants to look out for himself. He knows that if he sticks to the plan, then the whole world will benefit from his agony and his death. But if he were to just look out for himself, he may save himself, yeah, but then the whole world will miss out on the salvation that God has for humanity. And Jesus knew this temptation was gonna come one day. And that's why for every day leading up to that day, he's been praying, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we see that demonstrated in this short prayer. So let me just summarize what just happened here. Jesus in the garden told his disciples to pray for the temptation they're about to face. One day they're gonna be tempted to look out just for themselves for the sake of staying safe. And by saving their own lives, the people around them are missing out on the blessings of God. And then that very thing is now happening to Jesus. And Jesus demonstrates how he overcomes this temptation by praying for the years leading up to that moment, by praying the same prayer every single day. And that is the Lord's Prayer. Now, verses 43 and 44 is not included in all Bibles. Scholars believe that these two verses were not present in the original text, but it was added later on. And probably the, the early churches said, that's fine, let's keep it in there because it doesn't change the meaning of the story and it adds more weight to what Jesus is trying to say here. An angel from heaven appeared to him, that's Jesus, and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The takeaway here is that what Jesus prayed for was not to escape from this trial, but was to give him strength so that he could endure this trial. The point of this passage here is that Jesus' prayer worked. The years and years of praying the same prayer came to fruition right here as he was reminded that this is not about just him, it's about the world. And so he needs to stick to the plan. He has to drink that cup. Let's go on. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Here, Luke is giving us a comparison. He's showing how Jesus overcame trial by prayer, and here the disciples are too weak to even do that. I mean, the disciples haven't even entered the trial yet, and they're already tired and they're falling asleep. All right, now Jesus is about to face the trial that he was afraid of facing. Verse 47, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, a crowd came up, and a man who was called Judas, one of the 12, one of his own disciples, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Okay, so a little context here. Jesus' main ministry, the thing that he taught day in and day out, is the love of God. We need to love one another as God has loved us. Kissing was a form of greeting, a greeting for somebody that is a close friend, somebody that you love. 
You can say that kissing somebody as a greeting was a symbol of Jesus' movement. Just imagine, you're Jesus, you're out there, you're trying to get the message of love and salvation out there, and then one of your core followers comes up to you and mocks the very symbol that represents your movement. Now this part is like a comparison story. We see Jesus respond to Judas by asking him a question. Are you really going to betray me with the core symbol of our movement? And then we see, in contrast, how the disciples react to this. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Now, even before Jesus answers the question, it says one of them struck the servant of high priest, cutting off his right ear. Okay, a few observations here. Number one, when it says that Jesus' disciple swung his sword and uh, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, you have to remember that this person was not aiming for the ear. This person was aiming for the head, and because he's so bad at swinging the sword, it accidentally cut off his ear. In other words, the disciple was trying to kill this person. Okay, number two, the high priest was the most important person in the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago. The servant of the high priest is basically like saying the vice president. Now that he has a deformity on his body, basically his ear is cut off, there's Jewish law that says that he's not allowed to be a priest anymore. Priests are not allowed to have deformities. So his disciple at this point, in essence, made him unfit to be a priest anymore. So we have two problems here. First, the disciples were so ticked off at what Judas just did that they reacted by trying to kill a guy. And the second thing is, well, he seems to be fine, he's still alive, but he could no longer perform his duties. So Jesus, in contrast to the disciples, this is what he does. Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. You see, the problem here that Luke is paying for us is that both sides, they both feel like they're doing the right thing. The people who are coming to arrest Jesus, these guys think that Jesus is an imposter. They think that Jesus is being blasphemous for claiming to be God. So they're coming here to arrest him. But at the same time, the disciples, they think they're doing the right thing because they're trying to do this love revolution. They're trying to reclaim the purity of God's world. But in order for them to achieve that, they have to kill a few people that gets in the way of that revolution. So first, Jesus responds by healing the person's ear. That's a really good start. And then in typical Jesus form, he teaches them a lesson. He says this, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, Hey look, I've been in the temple courts every single day this past week teaching people to love God and love others. Does that sound like a rebellion to you guys? I mean, I don't see where the threat is in me teaching that. But not only that, I was doing that in broad daylight, in public. You could have arrested me right there and then. But for some reason, you guys felt the need to come out here in the middle of the night in private. The very fact that you're doing this in the middle of the night in private tells me that somewhere in your heart, you know that what you're doing is wrong. Here, Jesus is revealing to both sides, both his disciples and the temple personnel, that you guys both think you're doing the right thing. But if you were to just stop and look at what you're doing right now, you both realize that you guys are both in the wrong. You see, this is the importance of repeated prayer. In some circles, it's called liturgical prayers, where we repeat a written prayer every single day because we want it to be infused into our bones. When you pray every day, and when you pray, you pray the Lord's Prayer, there's something that gets set in your heart. In moments when tensions are high and you feel like you're pushed up against the wall and you're not thinking straight, 
these repeated prayers are going to be so infused into who you are that you're going to be reminded to say, your will be done, not mine. This is what he was telling his disciples to do in the beginning of this story. Keep praying now so that in a few moments when things go haywire, you'll be centered. You'll know exactly how to respond. Every day of your life, pray your will be done, not mine, so that when you come out here, you don't get lost in the moment. I mean, maybe you've been in a situation like this too. There's an issue and you and somebody else are on opposite ends of that issue and you both believe that you are right. And you get caught up in the moment and you start arguing back and forth, back and forth. And now tensions are high and your emotions are going out of control. And you start saying things to each other that, that you eventually regret. And who knows, maybe it even leads to violence. Or perhaps it's not just you and somebody else. It's maybe one family versus another family or one group versus another group. Perhaps the advice that we all need right now is the very same advice that Jesus gave to his disciples in the garden. Pray now a repeated prayer, the Lord's Prayer, so that when tensions are high, when emotions are going crazy, we can always default back to your will be done, not mine. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If we pray this every single day, whenever you or I are at our weakest and we lack self-control, we will naturally default to this prayer. The thing that will pop up in our minds when we need it the most would be this prayer. It'll center us and it'll help us to behave the way that Christ wants us to behave. Now, I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray when our back is pushed up against the wall. Yes, we should definitely pray in those situations. Like I said before, I think we live in a world where we like to pray only when we really need to pray. But what I'm saying is that there's another type of prayer, a prayer that we pray when everything is okay, when we're in peace mode. It's a prayer that prepares our hearts for those moments when we are backed up against the wall. Who knows, maybe one day this spiritual discipline will save one of your most important relationships. So church, may we all continually pray, especially when you're in a season of peace. And may the Holy Spirit take that prayer and infuse it into your being so that it comes up whenever you need it the most. And may we all experience heaven together. God bless.